0: Our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter two, verses 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, "'Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress.' And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. I want to add my welcome to Jael's. Thank you so much, Jael, for the announcements and for reading scripture. My name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church as an associate pastor, and uh, just a special word of welcome this morning to the elementary age students. Uh, elementary uh, students and younger, all ages are welcome up here on Sunday mornings, but uh, on occasion a few times a year, we suspend elementary school programming downstairs and invite them uh, to worship along with us. So We have a group uh, with us today that's not normally here, and I want to extend an extra special warm welcome to them. Uh, Would you bow your heads with me as we begin uh, our time in God's Word? Dear Father in Heaven, please come to this place here right now and open up our minds, open up our eyes, open up our hearts, open up our souls, Lord, to hear what it is that you have to say to us. Speak through me, Father. Make me decrease as you increase, and honor and glorify yourself through this study of your word. In your holy and precious name, we pray. Amen. Well, one of my favorite movies is the classic Stand By Me. And some of you right now might be thinking wait a second. Did he just refer to Stand By Me as a classic? And yes, yes I am. I'll stand by, do you see what I did there? Stand by, okay, okay, good. There's less of you, you have to laugh louder. It's even at my bad jokes. But I'll stand by that comment because believe it or not, the movie Stand By Me is almost 30 years old. You believe that? Almost 30 years old. But it still holds up incredibly well. If you haven't seen it, Stand By Me is the coming-of-age story of four 12-year-old friends, boys, who go on a journey to find a dead body. I, yeah, I know, I know. It sounds a little bit strange, but it is a great movie, and I would highly recommend it. It is rated R, so you've got to be 17, but it's a great movie. And I think one of the reasons why I like this movie, and it resonates with so many of us, is because the type of movie it is a coming-of-age movie, right? I mean, we're, we have no shortage of these where, where uh, people, a group of people or a person pass into a new stage, whether it be adulthood or the teenage years or, or something else. We seem to be fascinated by this narrative. You have movies like Almost Famous or The Breakfast Club, Dazed and Confused, or the television show that tragically only went one season, Freaks and Geeks. I loved that TV show. Why is it? Why are we so fascinated by this narrative? Well, I would submit that one of the reasons why we're fascinated by this particular narrative is because most of us couldn't wait to grow up. Most of us couldn't wait grow up children that are here today elementary students younger isn't that true can't you just not wait to grow up i mean don't you hate it when on new year's eve your older brother or sister gets to stay up till midnight i mean that's live right like that's happening this upcoming week and you're you're right now you're trying to convince your parents to let you stay up but you're just not quite old enough yet or students Don't you hate it when somebody says, oh, you can do that when you're an adult? I mean, I just did it, right? I said you couldn't watch Stand By Me until you were 17 because you're not old enough, right? I mean, don't you hate that? Don't you hate it, students, when somebody says, oh, you'll understand when you're older? We can't wait to grow up. Now, maybe we have some Peter Pans in here today. People that either could, uh, could have waited to grow up and didn't want to, or kids that just want to stay young forever, forever. Maybe we have some Peter Pans, but I'm willing to bet that most of us were chomping at the bit or are chomping at the bit to grow up. I know that I was. I was definitely chomping at the bit. Now, mostly, that was so I could eat off of the adult menus at restaurants. I wanted to order adult-sized portions of food when I was seven. Uh, but luckily, uh, my parents, they leaned on the restaurant establishments and said, no, 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 we have to abide by their rules. So I was like counting down the days until I was 13 and could order off of the adult menus. This is, this is me. I'm, I'm opening up my soul to you here. Right? I mean, this is why children always tell you they're half, right? They always tell you they're half, right? When a kid turns three, how old are they? Automatically, they're three and a half. <laughs> when a kid turns four, how old are they? Automatically, they're four and a half because they want to be older. They want to grow up. This is even the entire plot of the Tom Hanks movie Big, isn't it? He wanted to grow up so badly that he wished it into reality. And how did that coming-of-age story end? Well, it ended with him realizing that skipping the growing-up process was a terrible and tragic thing. And all he wants to do is go back so that he can actually grow up. Because that's the thing, isn't it? At the end of the day, since Never Never Land doesn't really exist, we all have to grow up. As much as we might want to find a shortcut and avoid the often painful process of growing up, we can't. We all have to grow up. And that's actually one thing that we see from our passage today that Jael just read a couple minutes ago. Even Jesus had to grow up. Even Jesus had to grow up. I mean, you'd think if anybody would be able to short-circuit the process, it would be Jesus, right? God in the flesh? But no, even Jesus had to grow up. Well, if you're new today or just visiting friends or family, we've been in a teaching series over the Advent season called What a strange way to save the world. We've been examining the first two chapters in the book of Luke, and we've been pondering God's perfect, yet often strange ways. And today, as we take one last look at the first two chapters in Luke, we find Jesus' own coming-of-age story. And as we've seen so far in this series, Jesus' coming-of-age story is a bit strange and a bit unexpected. Well, our story begins with Mary and Joseph on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast with now 12-year-old Jesus. That's right, since last week when Bill preached, 12 years have passed. I mean, man, time really flies, doesn't it? Well, Luke tells us in verse 41 that this, the traveling that Mary and Joseph are doing... uh, Jerusalem, was an annual custom for them, for the Passover feast. This was part of the ordinary rhythm of Mary and Joseph's Joseph's, uh, worship of God. The Passover feast celebrated the event of God delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and it was one of three pilgrimage festivals that the Israelites celebrated A pilgrimage festival meant that Jews who were living outside of Jerusalem would make the long, often long trek to the city to worship as one people together. And so this is what Mary and Joseph are doing at the end of Luke 2. We find them as faithful, ordinary Jewish people traveling to Jerusalem to worship their God as a family. Well, the family stays for the whole feast, which was a week long, and at the end of the week of celebrations and worship, the caravan packs up and begins the long journey back to Nazareth. And one day into that journey, Mary and Joseph experience every parent's worst nightmare. They can't find Jesus. He isn't with friends or family, and slowly they realize that they must have left him back in Jerusalem. Now, upon the first reading of this, we may jump to be too hard on Mary and Joseph. I mean, how could they have possibly gone an entire day without realizing that Jesus was with them? I mean, maybe we go a few minutes at the grocery store without knowing where our kids are, but a whole day? I mean, come on. Well, in those days, it was common for people to travel from city to city in groups. And they did this for two reasons. They did it for safety on the road, which could be a a place where uh, people were often robbed if they weren't in groups. They did it for safety and they did it for community. For community. And it's that second reason, community, that lets Mary and Joseph off the hook just a little bit. Because you see, in those days, it was so common for the children to be mixed in all together with Children spending time with friends and families and relatives and acquaintances. I mean, we kind of remember this, right? Those days where everybody's kid in the neighborhood was everybody's kid, right? And I mean, I even remember getting dropped off at my mom or by my mom or dad at a friend's house and my mom saying, now if he gets out of line, you you go ahead and discipline him, right? Because this was sort of the, the idea, this culture that everybody could parent everybody else's kids because part of an adult's legacy was raising up the next generation, It's something that we've lost a little bit, but it was very, very alive and well in Jesus' time. And so, yeah, maybe Mary and Joseph should have double checked to make sure that he was with them before they hit the road for Nazareth. But in one sense, it does make sense because they figured that he'd be with other people. But slowly, as they search for him, they realize that that's not the case. He's not with friends, he's not with family, he's not with acquaintances. And I think that in and of itself would be terrifying as a parent, right? I mean, Ashley and I are, are expecting our, our first baby here in April, and if, if I ever was in Mary and Joseph's shoes, I just can imagine that feeling that would sort of just wash over me. But it's even worse than that, than just not being able to find your son or daughter, because they are probably realizing that if they left him back in Jerusalem, they now have an entire day's journey before they can even begin to look for him. Where they can even begin to look for him. It's interesting, isn't it? Parenting is hard even when your kid is perfect. I, I'm not sure if this should make us feel better or worse, but it's one of the things that I took away from this story. Parenting even perfect kids is not easy to challenge. Well, Mary and Joseph, they finally get back to Jerusalem and they begin a frantic search for Jesus. And finally they find him. And where is he? In church. Jesus is in the temple where Jewish people worship God. And for you and I, readers who know fully who Jesus is, we appreciate his full and complete divinity. This makes sense, doesn't it? Of course Jesus would be in the temple. And of course Jesus would be amazing, the religious teachers with his understanding as Luke tells us he was doing in verse 47 of chapter 2. Of course he would be doing that. But for Mary and Joseph, there is nothing but shock. Look back with me at verse 48, which reads this, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son... Why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Great distress. That doesn't even really begin to fully capture it, does it? When I was seven or eight years old, my family and I and some friends of ours, we went to a Fourth of July festival at a naval base that was near our house. There's all sorts of festivities and games and rides, and during the course of us being there, at one point I got really far ahead of this group of family and friends, and I got separated from my family. I was lost. Uh, Great distress. I think that's exactly what came over my parents, except that and more, right? Well, I actually found an information table, and I went up to them. Can you imagine this scene, like a seven- or eight-year-old kid walking up to the information table, and I said, I'm lost. Just announced it to them. So they, they put me back there. They eventually found my mom and dad, and uh, we were reunited. And I still remember that look on my mom's face as she walked up to me to give me this big hug after we had been separated for probably about a half an hour. I mean, it was overjoyed, right? It was, it was relief. But it was also this, it was also great distress. I remember that look on my mom's face and I would imagine that Mary had a very similar look on her face as she approached 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. That's what she says to him. She said, why have you treated your father and I this way? We have been searching everywhere for you. You've caused us great distress. And and what's Jesus' reply? What's his response to his mother's question? Well, in verse 49, Jesus says in reply to Mary, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's not quite what we expected, right? I mean, it's a bit of a strange answer. What if upon finding me, and my mom asked me where I'd gone or what I had done, what if I had said, Now, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be at this information table? I mean, it's a bit odd, right? What is Jesus saying here? Well, with this reply, Jesus is saying that he must be involved with the instruction of the things of God. You see, Jesus had a call on his life to be a rabbi, a teacher, one who would instruct God's people in God's ways. And from this story, it seems like he's going to be a good one, doesn't it? I mean, he's, he's 12 years old, but Luke tells us in verse 47 that the religious teachers who were with him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, this is where Jesus' age becomes really important. I mean, little details that are in stories, uh, pay attention to those, because often they're there for a reason. And at the beginning of this narrative, Luke made a point to tell us that Jesus was 12 years old. And age 13 in Jewish culture was when uh, a child became a man, when a boy became a man. And so Jesus is still a child but is on the cusp of adulthood. He's right there. This is truly his coming of age story. And at age 13, young men, young adult men now, would attach themselves to someone older that would teach them a trade. They would become an apprentice. So play out this story with me one more time. Jesus is 12, about to become age 13 when he would become somebody's apprentice. And he's in the temple and he's wowing all of these religious teachers. He's wowing these rabbis. Now rabbis took apprentices as well. They took on young adult men, much like Jesus. So can you imagine the scene with me? All of these religious teachers are probably clamoring to have Jesus as their next student as their next prized pupil that will make them look really really good I mean right how would we have written the ending to this story well if it was me writing I think Jesus would have stayed in Jerusalem his parents may have even totally been on board right I mean that's how it works today the second that we see that our kid has has any special skills in anything we go out and we get them a special tutor we go out and we make them take these classes and they have to do this that or the other to maximize their gifting right That's how we would have written this story. Jesus would have stayed in Jerusalem. He would have been there. He would have attached himself to a rabbi and he would have begun at least his training for his ministry, at least training for his teacher. And again, if Jesus must be in his father's house as he says, then the expected ending of this story is exactly what I've been saying, that he would be in Jerusalem and apprentice under a famous rabbi. But again, this is a story where the unexpected and strange happens. Because that's not how it ends, is it? Look back with me at verse 51. And Jesus went down with Mary and Joseph and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Let me read that again. This is the the climax, right? This is the moment where we would expect Jesus to say, listen, I'm ready. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to apprentice under one of these teachers. I'm going to begin training for my ministry. Aren't you going to support me in this? That's what we would expect. That's the way we would have written it. But what happens? Verse 51. And Jesus went down with Mary and Joseph and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus, God in the flesh, goes home with his mom and dad. You see, even Jesus had to grow up. Even Jesus had to grow up. Jesus seemed ready, didn't he? All indications were that he could have begun his ministry right on the spot, or at least he could have begun training for his ministry. But for whatever reason, God in his perfect and unexpected plan says no. Not yet. Not right now. Even Jesus had to grow up. And not only did Jesus have to grow up, but this passage reveals another fascinating note. Jesus was submissive. Not only did Jesus return to Nazareth with his parents, Mary and Joseph, but he was submissive to them. And this brings us to our first application point. You can't truly grow up without submission. You can't truly grow up without submission. Now my guess is quite a few of you squirmed upon hearing that statement, right? It doesn't quite hit in a, in a way that's just like, ooh, yeah, I totally agree with that right away. I'll be honest, I squirmed as I wrote this. I had to wrestle with this for a long time, but I think we see it in the text. So don't abandon me quite yet. Let's take a look back specifically at verse 52, and I think we're going to see something that we all desire in verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We all want that, don't we? Whether we're 6, 16, or 60... I think and I hope that we all want to increase in wisdom and in favor, both with God and man. Don't we want that? I hope so. And if we do, if we do want that, if we want to grow in our wisdom, in our favor with both God and man, then the question becomes how? How do we grow in those ways? And I think that Luke connects the two. Remember, verse 51, and Jesus went down with Mary and Joseph and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Was submissive to them. Verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Luke seems to be connecting these two ideas and leading us to this application point that you can't truly grow up without submission. You can't truly grow up without submission. Now, even if you're tracking with me, even if you see that connection in Luke 2, that doesn't make this easy, does it? Even if you see the connection of Jesus' submission to his parents, to his growing in wisdom and stature, that doesn't make this an easy thing. Now, I would just remind us this morning that the Bible never promises easy. There are many, many times when we are flipping the pages of the Bible and something, the words there... God speaking are going to confront us. Going to be hard and difficult and challenging. And the temptation is going to be to set that book down and walk away. The temptation will be to set it down and walk away. Oh, there must be something wrong on the pages here. I would encourage us, you and me, to not do that. When we find something in the pages of Scripture that confronts us, that challenges us, that's difficult, I would submit to you That it's not the Bible that's wrong, but that it's you and I that are wrong. So even if this is hard this morning, that doesn't make it not true. And I really believe that one of the things that we see in this passage is that you can't truly grow up without submission. Man, that word has a lot of baggage, though, doesn't it? Submission. (laughs) Let me try to take some of that baggage away. What does it mean to submit? What does it mean to submit? Well, quite simply, it means to yield to the will or authority of another. To yield to the will or authority of another. And I want to address two groups of people with that definition in mind. To yield to the will or authority of another. Two groups of people. First, I want to speak directly to the children and the students that are here today. We have a few more of them. The elementary students are with us and I and I want to speak directly to you children and students, particularly those that are still living in their parents' household. In this story we see Jesus returning to Nazareth as a child still, 12 years old, around the age of many of you here, we see Jesus returning to his parents' household and being submissive, yielding, obeying his earthly parents. So when I say that you can't truly grow up without submission, one of the things that I mean is that children and students, the Bible clearly teaches that you are to yield to the authority of your earthly parents. You're to submit to them and obey them. Remember, even Jesus had to grow up. Even Jesus had to grow up. And one of the things that I think this story and other places in the Bible teach is that children and students should submit to, yield to, and obey their earthly mothers and fathers. Now I want to say a few things by way of (laughs) follow-up. Children and students, I want you to seriously think about why that might be today. Because I get it. I remember it wasn't that long ago that I was a child or that I was a student. And I remember hearing pastors stand up on pulpits like this one, right? Or behind pulpits like this one and say things like that. And, and the first thought in my mind was always, oh, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. I remember that very vividly. And so before you write me off this morning, I want just to encourage you to think deeply about this. I think one of the things that really annoys you, children and students that are here today, is that you don't think adults take you seriously. And I'm taking you very very seriously right now and I'm asking you to think deeply about this before you write it off. Why would God so clearly in his word command children to obey their mothers and fathers? Why would he do that? Is it just random? Is it just kind of mean? Is it just because God can do it? I think there's a real reason and a real point to it. I'll say this, and I really mean it, kids and students that are here today when I was living with my mom or dad, I really wish I had obeyed them more. I truly wish that I was more submissive to them and that I yielded more often than I did. I really, really mean that. I'm not just saying it to make the point of this this sermon right now. I really mean that. I do. Because one of the things that I learned when I got really into college was that my mom and dad knew a lot more than I thought they did. They did. They did. They had lived a lot more life. They had made some mistakes that I was going on and I was making. And my parents, because God had placed me in their care, they were perfectly qualified to lead me, to guide me, to direct me, and to raise me. And so I wished I had yielded to them more. I wished I had obeyed them more, submitted to them more. Now that doesn't mean that my mom and dad were always right. I remember being really angry about that as a kid, with me thinking like, Mom, you know, they, they're wrong too sometimes, right? Parents are not right 100% of the time. They're not. But that doesn't mean just the, the, the few times that parents are wrong, that doesn't discredit the Bible's teaching on obedience for children. Ephesians 6.1 is, is instructive here. This is a different part of the Bible where the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Ephesians 6, 1. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And two things I want to point out. One, kids, it says that children are to obey their parents simply because that's the right thing to do. And I get it. That's totally unsatisfying, right? It's like, hey God, why do I have to obey my mom and dad? And God says in, re- in reply, because I said so. And that's never, as a, as a kid, right? You hate it when your mom or dad says, because I said so. And that's basically what God's doing here. He's saying, I've made this entire world I've created this universe, I've created the family, I've ordered it in a specific way, and I've made parents have children, and the right order of the universe is when children are obeying their parents. So I get that that's not a a satisfying answer, it's not the one you want to hear, but it's the one that the Apostle Paul gives in the Bible. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. There's that second phrase there, right? Obey your parents in the Lord. What is that? What is that? Why is that there? Well, What Paul is saying in obeying your parents in the Lord is that children and students, the number one way that you can follow Jesus well is to obey your mom and dad. So one of the things I get to do here at Brookside is work with our students, our 6th through 12th graders, and I love it. I've been working with students for a long time, and so I've had a lot of middle school and high school students ask me, they want to follow God well. They want to follow Jesus. They want to, they want to uh, work on their relationship with him, and they say, how can I do that? How can I follow, my, uh, how can I follow Jesus well? And one of the first things I tell them, is, you can obey your mom and dad, because the Bible teaches that that, in the Lord, that is your number one way that you can follow Jesus well, is to obey your mom and dad. Now please hear my tone in all of this, right? The last thing that I want to do is take the Bible and beat it over kids' heads. I don't want to do that. Hear my tone in all of this. I do believe that the Bible teaches these things, and I, I, I firmly can say truthfully that, that I wish I had obeyed my mom and dad more. But hear my tone. Parents, please don't use these, these sections of Scripture. Don't use Jesus' as example. Don't use Ephesians 6:1 as an anvil on your kids. Don't do that. Take seriously your role as parents to train up your children gently, right? Train up your children gently as in 1 Thessalonians, with gentleness. Take seriously that call, parents. But I do think that one of the things I mean mean here, you can't truly grow up without submission. I think we're talking to children and students. Well, the second group that I want to address with this point today, you can't truly grow up without submission, is not just the children and students. I love you guys so much. Thank you for listening to me for a few minutes there. The second group that I want to address is all of us. All of us. We can't truly grow up without submission. And now, by this, what I mean is that we can't truly grow up into the people that we were created to be without full submission to God. Adults in the room, we don't get off the hook here. I think we can all learn from Jesus' example in this story. And I want to call all of us to submission, all of us to obedience, and all of us to yield to God's authority. Because again, that's the definition, definition of submission, right? Yielding to the will or authority of another. So let me ask you this question this morning. Everyone here, are you ready to yield to God? Are you ready to yield to God? Are you ready to give him the right of way? The Bible is clear on this as well. Life is better yielded to God. Growing up and becoming the people that we were created to be necessarily involves submitting to God, getting out of His way, giving Him back the reins. Are you ready to do that? I hope so. Listen to this quote by A.W. Tozer The reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves we're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us have you come to the end of yourself yet remember you can't truly grow up without submission our second application point this morning application point this morning is that you can't truly grow up without the ordinary You can't truly grow up without the ordinary. Now on the surface or at first glance, this point doesn't seem quite as controversial. I think it just seems rather well boring. But I think the opening words of this relevant magazine article captures this tension well. Ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. Who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? <laughs> who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, and has an ordinary job? We think our life has to count. We have to leave our mark, have a legacy, make a difference. End quote. I mean, nobody wants to be ordinary, right? Right? But what does Jesus spend the vast majority of his years doing? Living an ordinary Jewish life in ordinary Nazareth with ordinary parents working an ordinary job as a carpenter. That's instructive, isn't it? Again, if you or I were writing this story in Luke 2, how would it have ended? If it were me, Jesus would have stayed in Jerusalem and begun his ministry at 13. He would have started teaching. He would have been healing people. He even would have been raising them from the dead. Jesus certainly wouldn't have lived an ordinary life for most of his years. But that's exactly what happened. Remember, even Jesus had to grow up. And even Jesus grew up ordinary. I think we can learn from that. You can't truly grow up without the ordinary. And I think that the two areas where this point will have the greatest impact are in our homes and at our jobs. In our homes and at our jobs. Because what's more ordinary than working your 9 to 5, coming home for spaghetti with meat sauce, helping the kids with their math homework, and then falling asleep watching Jimmy Fallon? Some people like Jimmy Kimmel. Okay, noted. In a time where nobody wants to be ordinary, that doesn't seem too appealing, does it? I mean, didn't we just sing a song about God calling me out upon the water? We want this radical faith. And I'm not saying that that song was wrong. But what I am saying is that radical and extraordinary are not necessarily equal. And what I am saying is that here, on a day when we're probably thinking through our New Year's resolutions... Maybe I can call you to resolve to be more faithful in the ordinary, in the mundane. Can God call you out on the water exactly where he already has you? Absolutely. Today, on a day where we're probably getting ready to make big and grandiose resolutions, like, I will never drink coffee again, or I'm going to lose 50 pounds and work out every day. Instead, I want to urge you to resolve to be faithful in the ordinary and seemingly mundane, boring life that God may have called you to. That's not a bad thing. Ordinary is not bad. And I truly believe that you can't grow up without the ordinary. And that God is calling many of you to be faithful in what he has called you and where he has placed you right in front of you. I mean, it, it's interesting. We often normalize in Scripture the people that God does call into these big, act, big acts of service and ministry to Him, right? So we normalize the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles who were called away from their jobs into, into following Jesus. Uh, and, and, we, and we normalize even Jesus and, and His radical lifestyle, His ministry, without remembering that there was 18 years in the carpenter's shop before that. We, we normalize the Apostle Paul who traveled all around the known world planting churches and, and, and sharing the gospel. And, and truly, yes, there are people, there are Christians who are still called into acts of service like that today. But even in the Bible, we see people who had a much more ordinary call upon their lives. Think about Zacchaeus, right? He was this, this tax collector who was ripping people off and then he had this radical encounter with Jesus. His life was changed, but the text leads us to believe that he stayed right where he was. He talks about at the end of his encounter with Jesus, Zacchaeus talks about how he was going to give back the money to the people that he had stolen, right? I mean, Jesus changes Zacchaeus' life completely, but he stays right where he is, an ordinary, faithful, now better tax collector. Or think about all the people in the churches that Paul planted, right? Paul plants all these churches, but not everyone followed him in that work, right? Many, many people stayed right where they were. Their lives radically changed in one sense because they're now Christians following after Jesus and Jesus alone, but still working the same jobs, living in the same homes, having the same families. So this year, I want to urge you and call you, many of you, to a faithful, ordinary discipleship. I don't think ordinary is bad. And that doesn't mean that I'm calling you to to be lethargic, right? In, In no way am I calling you towards that. I think we can be radical in the midst of our ordinary lives. So from this passage today, we've seen that even Jesus had to grow up And that Jesus' example teaches us that truly growing up requires both the ordinary and submission. But I would be remiss if I closed at this moment in prayer. I have to say one more thing, because at this point, all I've shared with you is a try-harder message. A try-harder message. Try harder to follow Jesus' example. Try harder to submit. Try harder to be faithful in the midst of the ordinary. And to be sure, there's nothing wrong with trying harder. Sometimes we think there is. We don't ever want to communicate that you are saved or you become a Christian by trying hard, and so we tend to completely write it off, but we shouldn't. One of uh, our favorite quotes here at Christ Community is by Dallas Willard Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning not effort. So I'm not afraid to encourage you all to try harder, to encourage you to give greater effort to your walk with God. Not at all. I do want you to try harder, but I can't close with just that. Because as Pastor Tim Keller wisely reminds us, Jesus can never be just our example. Can never be just our example. If that's all Jesus is to us, if he's just an example for us to look at and strive towards, if that's all Jesus is, he will eventually crush us. Because here's the truth this year, when you try your hardest to submit to God, children, when you try your hardest to submit to your moms and dads, we all will fail. This year, when you try your hardest, when we try our hardest to be faithful in the midst of the ordinary, we will fail. You and I, we're going to fail. We will fall short of Jesus' example. And when we do, He has to be more to us. He can't just be our example. He also has to be our Savior. Jesus has to be the one who came to be faithful when you and I fall short He has to be the one who came to live the life that you and I failed to live, to die the death that we deserve, all so that we could be made whole again. Do you know that truth this morning? The truth of the gospel, the truth that Jesus is not just your example, though he is that, but he also is your savior. I hope so. I pray that you do. This year, as you seek to live an ordinary life of submission in light of Jesus' example, don't forget that he died and rose again for the times when you fall. And when you do fall, Jesus is right there, picking you up, dusting you off, and encouraging you to keep going. Would you pray with me? Dear Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus to be our example, Lord. And may we try hard by the power of your spirit to follow in Jesus' example, to be submissive to you and to our parents, Lord, if we are children. I pray, Lord, that we would follow Jesus' example of an ordinary, faithful life. But Lord, I'm so thankful that Jesus isn't just our example. Thank you for sending Jesus so that he would Save us from our sins. Save us from the times in which we fall short. Thank you, God, for Jesus. I pray all this in your name. Amen.